We're going to look at Acts 18, 1 through 11 this morning. So we continue on through Acts. Have you enjoyed Acts? Yes. It's great, isn't it? Allow me to pray, then we'll read these 11 verses, and we'll look at them over the next 45 minutes. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, that uh, we are in union with Him. We, therefore, have a ministry that is from Him. We are part of your body. We are members of the household of faith. We do not take this for granted, but we rejoice in this. Lord, help us this day to to be attentive, to be engaged, uh, as led by your Spirit, uh, to minister to one another, to love one another, and uh, to understand something more of redemptive history and uh, the proclamation and spread of the gospel as we look at this account this morning in Christ's name. Amen. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Verse 1, it says, after this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. After this, that is following... Paul's speech to the philosophers um, in Athens. Paul left and he journeyed on to Corinth, um, arriving spiritually and physically exhausted. Um, He would uh, later write to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he said this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom as they had expected in Athens. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So why was he like this? I mean, discouraged, obviously distraught. Well, no doubt partly because his work in Athens didn't achieve much, you know, apparently. Um, along with the fact that he was, you know, he was still traveling alone. That would discourage anyone. Paul tells us in the letter um, 
to the church of Thessalonica that he wrote also from Corinth, uh, that both Timothy and Silas actually came down from Berea to Athens. Okay, now they arrived there, but then he sent them away. That's what Paul tells us. He sends them back, sending Timothy to Thessalonica and Silas, probably, although it doesn't say so, probably back to Philippi. So they did arrive, but he sends them back. We find out in in, um, Paul's other writings. So, you know, his his reception in in Athens was minimal. Uh, He didn't stay there long. And then he arrives here in Corinth, um, discouraged, despondent. He's weak. He may even have been physically ill. According to F.F. Bruce, it says, Paul traveled to Corinth in a mood of great dejection. Only to enter Corinth which was an incredibly prideful, corrupt city and people. He arrives in town, and he's certainly not met with any fanfare. There's no welcoming committee. There's no banner that says, Welcome, Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of that. He enters an arrogant, the arrogant, immoral cesspool known as Corinth. Corinthians were a very proud people. We see their uh, intellectual arrogance emerge later in the very writings of Paul as he addresses them. It was a city that boasted in its wealth, boasted in its culture. Uh, it uh, It was host to the world famous Isthmian Games. They hosted them every other year, second only to the Olympic Games where they would meet to run races and throw javelins and discs at the discus and wrestling and boxing. So it was an athletic city, um, and it was also uh, of great political prestige. By this point in time, they had um, taken precedence over even that of Athens. And, and above all, this was a city known for its immorality, its perversity. This was the original sin city, the original Vegas. Atop of the city summit stood the temple of Aphrodite, of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, where a thousand female slaves served her and then would roam the city at night um, as prostitutes. So the sexual promiscuity had, had become... Uh, proverbial. Those who pr- practice immorality were referred to as those who have been Corinthianized. Corinthianized. A euphemism of, of fornication. It was the sex capital of the ancient world. And if you didn't like somebody and you were, really wanted to hit them below the belt, just refer to them as a Corinthian. It was an insult. An insult of insults. In this day, Corinth had a population of 250,000 or so free people, made up of Greeks, Italians, and Jews, people from the East, along with an additional half a million slaves. So, a city of about 750,000 or so. Numerous backgrounds and ethnicities. It was the center of trade and travel, so you had caravans and you had sailors that would regularly come through um, this, this great city. 
Um, and it was the place uh, for the entertainment of lust. It's been said of some writers that Corinth was the very vanity fair, the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. One writer says that characteristically churches take on the characteristics of the environment in which they exist culturally. Is, do we not see this in the letters time and time again? Not to give way or, or lend yourself to the practices of those who surround God's people. Now, this was true of the church in Corinth. Paul, had addre- Paul addressed them twice, at least twice, telling them over and over again to purify and cleanse themselves, that you shouldn't act like them. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You are a, a purified people. And, and the gospel of Christ crucified summoned them to repentance and holiness. This is what he reminds the Corinthians Warning them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We see connection between this warning and the city of Corinth. It says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Corinth was in no way immune uh, to the influence of the sins of the culture that were, that had, that were surrounding it um, in her day. It was a scandal-ridden church. But sometimes God calls people to serve in difficult places. Amen? More often than not. Well, at the same time, he, he places other people there to provide encouragement. And here, Paul makes some new contacts. So Paul's sent here by God. And God does not expect us to serve solo. Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Now, these two show up several times throughout the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We see them at least three times in a 15-year span or so with Paul. They had been dispelled from Rome uh, by way of some kind of disruption there. Claudius, that was his way of dealing with disruption, just expel people, specifically Jews, expel the Jews, get them out of here. Verse 2, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. So here they are. Banished from the city, uh, probably as Christian Jews. And Aquila and Priscilla show up. They're here in Corinth, and, and they're tent makers by trade. So Paul joins them. He probably lives in their home. And he earns a living in order to survive. He's a preacher. Preachers need to be paid. Amen? Amen? <laughs> Preachers are to be paid. We know that. But not all the time are they able to be paid. At this particular time, Paul wasn't able to be paid. So he takes up what he knows. He takes up something he had been trained in, and that is as a tent maker. The rabbis used to say this. He who does not teach his son how to work teaches him to steal. Teach your boys how to work, man. Amen? Teach those lads how to heave ho. So all Jewish boys were, were, were taught a, a physical labor trade so that they could earn an, a, a living if necessary. 
And Paul was a tent maker, so he, he had this transportable occupation. He was able to make use of it wherever he went, because in the ancient world, um, tents were part of the, a regular traveling kit. Most everyone had a tent. So he would make tents and also canopies for those the flat rooftops of people's homes. They would usually have a canopy there from the sun, and they would sit out there in the summer and so on. So you'd make canopies, you'd make tents, and here are some fellow tent makers that the Lord in his providence provides uh, for the Apostle Paul, sending him into uh, the evil city of Corinth. Verse 2, and he went to see them. Verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Whatever Paul did, he did for the glory of God. Hopefully, whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. As a banker, as a baker, as a mechanic, as a realtor, whatever, may we do it for the glory of God. So Paul, at this point in time, was strapped during the week, strapped to to cutting patterns and sewing them uh, to make a tents in order to make a living, and on the, on the Sabbath, we find him where we always find him, and that is in the local synagogue preaching Christ, right? Trying to persuade people with the gospel. That's what preachers do, amen? Their, their desire is to persuade people to believe the truth. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. You know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11? about persuading people. He said, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord. What, reverence? Reverential fear? No, more than that. Because if we look at the preceding verse, verse 10, it has to do with the judgment seat of Christ, which we will all stand before. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. William Hendrickson comments on this. He says, Paul does not have in mind reverence for the Lord. That's taken for granted. But a holy fear that relates to the judgment seat of Christ. This this man was driven. Was Paul driven by the love of God? Was he motivated by the love of God? You better believe he was, but he was also motivated by the future judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll see this morning in the sermon. God's gospel was Paul's ambition. This brother was driven to persuade people with the truth. So Paul arrives, he's distraught. The Lord provides him with fellow believers for the sake of gaining strength and encouragement. May we never take one another for granted. Amen? If you're ever stuck someplace alone, as much bickering and backbiting as sinful creatures as that we are have a tendency to do, you would long for those same brothers and sisters if you were locked up somewhere alone. Amen? So God doesn't expect us to serve on an island separated from brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. We need one another. The Lord knows this. He provides this brother and this sister. 
As a matter of fact, it's the Lord who established a plurality of leadership within the church. So here's Paul ministering. He's preaching. And God sees to it that he sends him more help, more companionship. And then, not only are Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, not Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Aquila and Priscilla there, um, Timothy and Silas arrive. Okay, and when they show up, they bring two things. Two things. Number one, they bring good news of the church in Thessalonica. They bring a good report that they were standing firm, they were standing in the faith. Paul would write the Thessalonians from Corinth, and he would say this, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, because Paul was in Corinth, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So we know they brought a good report from what? Paul wrote from Corinth to the Thessalonians. The second thing they brought was money, which is very helpful in ministry. Amen? They brought money from the Macedonian churches. Where do we learn this? 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul will later write the very church that he has established and is ministering in at this point. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9. When I was with you and was in need... I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now in verse 5, it looks as though Paul is no longer making tents. It looks as though he's now given up tent making, perhaps because the church at Thessalonica, uh, Berea, uh, the church of Philippi, uh, by way of the hand of Silas, uh, brought Paul enough financial aid to where he no longer, at this point, had to make tents. Remember what he said to the Philippians when he wrote them? Philippians 4, verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves... Know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Okay, freeing Paul to be occupied with the word, verse 5. He was occupied now with the word, also can be translated devoted to the word. He was engrossed in the word. He now had, obviously, the time to be engrossed in the word, devoting himself, apparently, completely to the work of the ministry without distraction. Released to do what he was called to do. So serving now in the city, he's studying, he's preaching, he's teaching. Uh, He has a, a growing team of support. And he once again begins to face what we have come to expect every time we read through Acts, which is now the norm, and that is what? Opposition. Opposition. God's work and God's word are always accompanied with problems, pressure, and conflict. You can tell people what they want to hear, and there won't be any conflict. 
You just get enough people together to hear what they want to hear, and there'll be no conflict. You, you preach to the world what they want to hear, and you'll definitely have no conflict, <laughs> no pressure. You preach the truth of the Word of God, you preach the whole counsel of God, you will have pressure, and you will face conflict, even from the people who claim to be God's people. So being occupied with the word, he preached to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed him, verse 6. When they opposed him and reviled him, he sh- this is awesome. This is awesome. He shook out his garment and he said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So he's met with hostility. He's met with blasphemy here in the synagogue. Paul shakes out his clothes and makes this statement. I'm innocent of your blood. Your blood's on your head. The Jews had a saying, which you're familiar with, about shaking off the dust of your feet, right? In reference to, to Gentile countries, in the mind of a Jew, whenever a Jew traveled and they would go through Gentile country, they would shake off symbolically, literally though, shake off the dust of their shoes to symbolize the fact that they would, would not want to take any uh, uh, Gentile soil and contaminate the dust of Israel. It was the Jews' way of humiliating or, or casting a you know, degrading statements of or towards Gentiles. Okay, with that in mind, Paul takes that custom, flips it around. He flips the script. He's the master of flipping the script. He flips the script. He takes off his cloak and and shakes it in their faces. He says, your blood be on your heads. Do you remember when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate in Matthew 27? Do you remember what the Jews cried out at that time? Let his blood be upon us and our children. Which simply means we accept the responsibility for his death. So Paul says, your blood be on your own hands. I'm clean. I fulfilled my responsibility. I've delivered to you the gospel. You are responsible for what you do with it. Does sovereign grace negate human responsibility? We're sovereign grace people, amen? We believe in sovereign grace without a doubt. That doesn't erase human responsibility. Those are two doctrines that just have to simply stand independent of one another. They rejected God's Christ. You reject God's Christ, you reject God's gospel. You reject God's gospel, you reject his mercy, you reject his grace, you reject his love, and you reject his forgiveness. And again, that in no way negates sovereign grace and salvation. And then he moves Okay? Paul moves far away from the synagogue, right next door. Did you get that? Right next door. <laughs> right next door to hell, so to speak. 
I thought about this and right next door to hell because of what Jesus said to the churches in Revelation. To the persecuted church in Revelation 2, verse 9, he says, I know your works, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and they're not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Right next door to hell. To the church of uh, Philadelphia, chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, I know that you have little that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Which tells us that the only way anyone can be a true Jew A true Israelite is to be in the true Israelite. And the true Israelite is Jesus Christ. He's the vine. He's true Israel. The true Jew. To be true spiritual Israel, you must be in the true Israelite. Verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. awesome so the word of god is beginning to spread the power of god's beginning to take effect men and women probably children are beginning to place their faith and trust in jesus christ verse 8 crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed in the lord together with his entire household and many of the corinthians hearing paul believed and were baptized notice the sequence please you hear the gospel by god's grace you believe the gospel and then you publicly proclaim it in baptism. Faith, Romans ten seventeen comes by hearing a speech about Jesus Christ. You hear, you believe, you get baptized. The Lord is blessing his ministry in Corinth. And again, whenever God blesses the ministry, we can expect there will be increased opposition along with increased opportunity. When there's opposition, there's opportunity. Amen? When Paul wrote the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 8, he said this, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Notice what he said. For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Notice, he didn't say a wide door for effective work, but there are many adversaries. He says no. Instead, a wide door for effective work, and there are many adversaries. They always seem to go together. Opportunity and opposition. That's why we haven't gotten too discouraged over the years in ministry. There's disappointment. Discouragement, don't like to use that term too much. There is discouragement sometimes by what people do, by what people say. But you know you have an effective ministry if there's opposition. Not that I'm, who wants to look for a, anybody want to be in a fight? No. Who wants to be in a fight? Who wants to throw down when you don't have to throw down? Amen? But nevertheless. 
the fruit of opportunity in this case is the guy who runs the synagogue gets saved. (laughs) And not only him, his whole house says they believed. And then many other Corinthians as well. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of London, he said this, quote, The devil never kicks a dead horse. Meaning that as we do God's work, the proof that the Spirit is at work is that opposition usually will arise. So in the midst of all of this, opposition, opportunity, fruit of the ministry, fruit of of the Holy Spirit, through Paul, through the ministry, also amidst the encouragement and the people that he sends to him for support, Paul was struggling with fear. I mean, even after this great victory. Not unlike Elijah. You remember Elijah? You remember his situation? Who who took somewhat of of a nosedive after a great victory? You know, he he stands against the prophets of Baal. He confronts them with courage. Man, I can see him sticking his finger in their face. And he stands, man, in confidence. Confidence in God's word. And then he runs away in response to the threats of Jezebel. And, And Paul, obviously, is here railing in the very same way, a very similar way. Now remember, Paul had already been run out of town. Okay, Paul had been run out. He, he likely hasn't recovered from the beating he took in Philippi. So think about this. Think about the pain. It's like a dog. These dogs that are in these shelters, they break their spirit because every time they look at you, you beat them. You just kick them or punch them or club them and breaks their spirit. So anytime a human comes around and lifts their hand to scratch their head, the dog cowers. Right? I mean, Paul's been beaten down, run out of town. He's already been stoned, imprisoned. And and all of these things have a way of piling up on a man, even a man like this. Okay, and then add to that, doing ministry in the midst of a perverted city like Corinth. Okay, just try to put yourself there. Beat down, punched, slapped, beaten with rods, thrown in prison, kicked out of town, stoned, left for dead. And you come hobbling into the next place preaching the gospel. It's not well received, so you go into the next place called Corinth, hopping along, and into this perverse city. Now, you can think of Paul. Okay, when he wrote the church at Rome, he was in Corinth. Remember when we were back in chapter 1? You can picture him sitting, looking out his window, so to speak, in Corinth, writing this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what? 
can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not, did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish heart were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Now, he's just looking out the street. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. No doubt a summary of the life in Corinth. So under all of this opposition, amidst all the pain, all the turmoil, all he's experienced, all, and then surrounded by this corruption, God ministers to his heart. God consoles Paul, and he gives him a lift. Because, you see, when we're down like this, what do we have? We're down. When you go down, downtown, spiritually, we have a tendency to what? Forget. We're forgetters. Christians are forgetters. That's why you always have to preach the gospel, because we forget. We'll see that in the sermon this morning as well. Paul preaches because you forget and because I forget. Not only the gospel, but everything attached to the gospel. So verse 9, the, Paul, uh, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be what? Afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So here's the same man who's been run out of town, beaten, stoned, and, and was sing, actually singing songs when he was locked up in prison. And, and since God doesn't waste words, Paul must have been, what? Afraid. What, afraid of the Jews? Afraid of pain? Afraid of what else might happen? Afraid like a dog? When you lift your hand, you're going to get hit? I don't know, but he was afraid. Many of us today right here in San Diego, right here in old PHC, right here, are very good at borrowing trouble. Amen? That we'll most likely never face. 
living in fear. Some Christians live a harassed life. It's called self-harassment. Just waiting for something disastrous to happen. And if we're patient enough, if I'm just patient enough, something disastrous will happen. (laughs) Instead of treasuring time and seasons with our children, nurturing them in Christ, training them up in the word, preaching Christ, reminding them of Christ, enjoying the moments... Um, honing the skills God that has given them. Because we see their sin nature, many times we're gripped by fear and have a tendency to perhaps think of them, you know, abandoning the faith or making shipwreck of the faith. So they're eight years old and we're just gripped by fear and we can't even enjoy life because we're just borrowing trouble. Amen? put ourselves through a a thousand tribulations that we never had the fear in the first place. So we need to hear God's word to Paul. We have to remind one another of God's word to Paul. It fits us just as well. Amen? Do not be afraid. I don't know how many times that phrase shows up in the Bible. I just kind of pull it up, look at, and it was too many to count. So I didn't count it. You'll have to count it yourself. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, he says it to Israel. He says it to Joshua. He says it to Elijah. He says it to Elisha. He says it to Ezekiel. He says it to Jeremiah. Jesus says it to his 12 disciples. And Jesus says it to the women who show up at the tomb. Do not be afraid. Fear like this, not yielded up to God and trust, will lead to depression more times than not. Amen? Some people suffer with depression. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Spurgeon was afflicted with depression so badly that sometimes he would be taken to his bed for days, days at a time. But yet, he was, was he not used by God in incredible ways? Yeah. In spite of it, God uses us. For in our weakness, he shows himself strong. So he said, do not be afraid. Verse 9, go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So he he promises to be with you. That was the same promise Jesus gave to his disciples before ascending, right? I will be with you. I will not leave you orphans. I will send you another helper. The Holy Spirit. So though we may feel, we may feel, right? We've all probably felt as though God has abandoned us. True or not true? not true. True that we felt it, perhaps feel it, but yeah, but, but, but not true that he, he has or ever will. He never will. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You may feel that way at your job, trying to live for Christ, trying to testify Christ. 
You may feel as though you're on an island. You may be the only believer there. God has not abandoned you. He says, I am with you. Do not fear. I'm with you. Speak on. He doesn't promise us freedom from difficulty. Amen? Never. Verse 10, he said, I have many in this city who are my people. What, many converts in Corinth? No, not at this point. Many who? Many of my people. In other words, many of those that are my elect who, who haven't come to faith yet. But they will come to faith, so keep on preaching. Keep on speaking. Because it's only through the word preach that God's elect are brought to saving faith. In time. Many people, they're mine, they're already his, which means they were atoned for. God's elect were atoned for. And if they're atoned for, they will come to faith, but they're only going to come to faith by the proclamation of the gospel. And it might not be the first time that plant is seeded, that plant, the seed is planted, right? It's planted, it's watered, watered, water. If they're God's elect, in time they come to faith, they were already his people, and it will be made manifest that they are his people. So this is encouragement for him to stay there a year and a half. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. God's plan fulfilled. Amen? So we'll stop there today.